You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Mike Susong is a consummate gentleman, a real class act. He was also a U.S. Army major who completed multiple combat tours and a CIA case officer who won the Intelligence Star for heroism in the field. It doesn't end there, though. In the private sector, Mike created competitive intelligence programs for Fujitsu and Ernst & Young. These aim to support business decision-making as opposed to national security decision-making. And he was a pioneer and entrepreneur in the field of cyber threat intelligence, or CTI, creating the first programs for Visa and Pacific Gas and Electric. As someone who has a couple of Visa cards, I, for one, am particularly grateful for that. He's equally at home at the Regal Dining Room of the Army-Navy Club in Washington, D.C., the most prestigious military officers club in the United States, or in the Nevada desert as a Burning Man volunteer, which for those of you who don't know, is an annual clothing optional event that focuses on artistic expression, spiritual regeneration, and radical inclusion, culminating in the symbolic burning of a large wooden effigy known as the man. Now, if all of that is not the making of a great podcast guest, I don't know what is. This is the first episode of a two-parter, part one focusing on Mike's time working for Uncle Sam, especially his time at CIA and in human intelligence, while the second part will focus on his time in the private sector and the cyber threat intelligence and competitive intelligence spaces. And what follows today, Mike and I discuss his journey from a curious kid hanging a shortwave radio wire out of his window to a case officer for the CIA, his transition from tactical intelligence to the big picture of strategic intelligence, the outgrowth of intelligence from a nation-state discipline to a mainstream corporate activity, and also his view that just as in business you can get people who are good at closing a deal and people who are good at the day-to-day -day management of a deal, 
So in intelligence, you can get someone who's good at recruiting an agent and someone who's good at running that agent with them not necessarily being the same person. Enjoy this episode. I know I loved speaking to Mike. I thought a really good way to start off, Mike, would be to just discuss what you're up to at the moment and then we can use that as a marker to go back and dig into your past because you've had such a varied and interesting career where you've had to move across different uh, spheres. So just tell us a little bit more about what you're up to just now and then we can jump cut back to the beginning. Sure, be more than glad to and certainly appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak with you today here at the International Spy Museum. Currently, I oversee a group of risk intelligence analysts, about 130 around the world. We work for a, a private company, and we oversee risk concerns for about 1,200 global corporations. That's one of the things that I want to dig into, the way that intelligence has slipped the bonds have been mainly uh, something that people think of when they think of nation states. It's moved over into corporations and threat intelligence and all these other types of things. So it'd be quite interesting to discuss the evolution or the migration of intelligence from government to corporations. Uh, no, would be, be glad to. In fact, is that's kind of one of my uh, favorite topics that what we've seen evolve from intelligence as a discipline of the nation states to being used within corporations. Uh, uh, sometime when I talk with, with groups, I, I say I can give you the, uh, the history of intelligence in 10 minutes, uh, but it all evolves and we'll see where the conversation takes us today. But I would say one of the key factors, and I'll give the abridged version, is intelligence obviously evolved for support of the nation state as of World War II. I mean, you could argue historic events prior to that, but that's when it became a profession, at least within the U.S. In 1962, the Defense Intelligence Agency was formed and actually the Defense Intelligence School, which is now uh, the National Intelligence University, opened to all of the U.S. Uh, intelligence community. So if you look at the early 60s is when the profession was formed, and then you take a generation of individuals who had formal schooling, quote-unquote, they then begin to be available, if you will, into the private sector. So the timing comes around to the 80s, and you begin to see individuals and corporations, a few, begin to see how intelligence, in a very ethical and appropriate way, could be used to support corporate decisions and, and risk mitigation. And that's really, to your point, how this has all evolved and where I am today. One of the classic definitions was, uh, I think, Michael Warner, secret state activity. And then even recently I saw the editor of the Journal of Intelligence and National Security, He's, he offered a definition of intelligence and it was basically it's information that is used by the government to aid decision-making. So, you know, that made, made me think, do you find old colleagues or people that are still in or that have left that's, that are still wedded to this idea that if it's not involving the government or the nation state, then it's not intelligence, that are kind of more proprietorial on behalf of institutions like the CIA or the NSA, you know, 
they do intelligence, this is not intelligence. Do you ever get that or are people pretty open-minded? I would say we're probably halfway there to to be an open-minded, understandably, and with great respect uh, to all my colleagues globally in the profession, when national security and the decisions with the gravity of those decisions are are about you, that's your focus. Uh, You know, you could jokingly say when all you have is a hammer, all the world's a nail. but but you do see the colleagues that appreciate how to to maybe modify that definition is intelligence is information that helps a decision maker and then you broaden the aperture to a business leader or a, an NGO someone who is in a risky environment and needs to make a a smart decision so you see the colleagues moving in that direction and whether we talk about it today or or another time uh, that opens the conversation into open source intelligence. And I think fundamentally that's a, a direction that's reshaping both the IC as well as the private sector. Let's do a jump cut back. How did you first get involved in the world of intelligence? Uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I started out as, a, uh, as an infantry officer, a uh, combat arms officer in the, in the Army. I had the opportunity after command to come to the National Intelligence University to get an advanced degree here in Washington, D.C. And I'd always, uh, I'm, a, I'm a kid who grew up with uh, reading Casino Royale uh, and um, the, the TV shows of the early 60s that, you know, glamorized the intelligence service. Uh, and I guess we're all drawn a little bit to that. Some point reality sets in and you see what the work is really like, and it's all the more exciting and all the more interesting. Uh, so it was from the military, and then I was an officer during the, the 80s, spent a lot of time in Central America, uh, which were, as people recall, were the the, uh, the insurgency wars in Central America and the drug wars in Latin America. So the evolution there was for me to get more and more involved with uh, in intelligence work uh, in support of those operations. So that's that's kind of how the evolution came about. And you were in the Army for 14 years, you said? That's correct. Yeah. What years were you in? The late 70s into the, what would be, what, the the 90s. Okay. One of the things that's interesting is 14 years, how difficult was that decision to leave? Because that's the, the point where you're kind of thinking about, if I stay a bit longer, I can get a pension and this can be my career, this can be my life. How difficult was that decision to shift? Sure, and at some level, it's always a, a difficult decision, but I'd had the luxury to really be involved with intelligence work, and I, uh, again, I'll respect my colleagues who were more focused on the the Cold War in Europe, and, you know, my desire was not to, to be a tank commander and try to plug the full to gap against the Soviets. And so when I had the opportunity to really do intelligence work on the ground in El Salvador and other places— I was drawn to that. And at a place in your career, you're still certainly engaged, but it becomes more administrative. It's more of a staff officer role. And I loved being involved in the intelligence operations. One of my mentors at, at the agency always said, those are, there are those of us who ride to the sound of the guns. And so that's what I wanted to stay involved with. And so I had the opportunity to join uh, the Central Intelligence Agency and stay very active in, in the role. You were seduced by the types of activities and the area of operations. It wasn't so much 
this is an institution that, uh, you know, the army that I want to be in for my life. It was more just, I joined the army, found this work really, really intriguing and I wanted to continue this work and that's why I made the shift. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's more than fair. And in fact, my last, last assignment in the military was at Fort Bragg, which is the home of both uh, the Airborne as well as the Special Operations community. And if, if our listeners remember their history, the origin, at least within the U.S., of the intelligence profession and the special operations profession was born out of OSS. So there was always a, a parallel and a partnership between those two organizations. So to leave Fort Bragg uh, and then to go into uh, as an operations officer with the CIA, it was uh, a, a lot of common ground and a lot of uh, common mission. I know that that's one of the talks that you <laughs> uh, give on the OSS and on the early days. Do you think that being in the U.S. Army, being, a, being an infantry officer and then transitioning over to intelligence, your career is very, quote-unquote, OSS. It's, it's that fusion of military, you know, involved in Central America, which wasn't, as you alluded to, two big armoured columns, you know, opposing each other. It was a, a very different type of operation. So, um, yeah, I just wondered how you interpret the, so, the OSS in light of your own career? I uh, wouldn't want to flatter myself as far as the extent of my involvement as, <laughs> as a special operator, but, but being focused on the tactical application of intelligence to national security was very much a focus, and, and you could argue, uh, as, as Churchill said, set Europe ablaze. <laughs> it was certainly a role where you felt like what you did each day, you know, you, you could certainly draw the line from what you did to how it may have helped mm-hmm. help secure your nation or the community. Okay, so you're in the army, you make the transition to intelligence and set the scene for us. So, so you join, are you the typical kind of officer, a little bit older some time in the military? Are you atypical? What type of intelligence community did you find when you joined it? Obviously, you're someone that's kept abreast of developments in intelligence, so you'll be keenly aware of some of the evolution or the growth or the the changing of the field. So tell us what kind of intelligence community you encountered that Mike Susong joined. Yeah, that's a good point. And I made the transition in the early 90s. And if you if you look at history, that's also with the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the two evolved and I had the opportunity to grow into that new role. If, if you look at the, moment, the comment I made earlier about being more interested in tactical intelligence in Latin America than the ground war in, in Western Europe that most of the military was prepared for, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it really opened up the aperture for the more tactical operations. So in other words, the mission of the intelligence community shifted from a bipolar world to a, to a multipolar world and different threats. And obviously, we saw how those evolved in the early 2000s. So I, I guess inadvertently, I had prepared uh, for that transition. And so in that sense, it, w- it was seamless in the missions, whether it was Somalia or or other places in the world that the intelligence community became involved with. Uh, it, was, it was, in that sense, a seamless transition. What kind of agency did you encounter? Who were the kind of leading personalities? What was the culture of the community at the time compared to where it's been more recently? Tell us about the scene that you encountered. 
Again, I would say it was at a transition, respecting the old tradecraft and the ways that had served the intelligence community well for, for decades. Again, it was a new, a new mission, a new enemy. And so you were seeing the innovators, whether they were in leadership roles or the young Turks, coming up with new ideas. You think of that time, uh, drones operating with new communications capabilities. The internet was about to become a thing both for information, how it would impact cover, how it would uh, avail information that would have been much more difficult to obtain previously is suddenly available uh, at the click of a mouse. So this was a transition period, and and I was lucky to to be able to be part of that transition. How much did you have to learn? uh, Because you've got this previous experience, uh, did you have to... Was it a huge learning curve or was it, it was, it was tough, but my previous experience meant that it wasn't as tough as it was for other people? I guess in one sense, I was neither fish nor fowl. Since while I was in the, the military, I'd had the opportunity to get my master's degree in strategic intelligence. So I'd already started to think in a wider aperture as far as national security and the broader intelligence community. So so that was certainly beneficial in, in that regard. So I already kind of was able to step into from the tactical to the strategic view of our nation's concerns. Uh, at the same time, with, within the agency, there's a healthy sprinkling of prior military. I wouldn't say it's hierarchical, maybe as the military is, but there was that structure and common experience, whether it was in the military or otherwise. So there were enough touch points to kind of lead you through the the transition. And again, the military mission and the intelligence community missions may be different in the absolute sense, but they're both national security missions. So everybody was still rowing in the same direction. You know, your interest in national security, is is that something that Everybody that you came across shared. I mean, I guess at some level you have to know it because your job is impacted by it. But for you, is it was it something that you were really fascinated by, or was it more this is something I need to understand for professional knowledge, or has it grown or shifted or evolved over the years? In my case, I think it evolved out of interest in cultures and history. Uh, as a kid. Um, I remember uh, saving uh, Aaron money to buy a shortwave radio, stringing the wire out the window to listen to languages and places where I really didn't know where they were. But that was intriguing. And so I think I grew out of it from how do other people see the world? Why do armies cross borders when commerce stops crossing borders? And so that evolved into the, it's very easy then to connect the next dot as to why is that important to my nation? Wow. And tell us more about that experience of doing the master's degree in strategic intelligence. That must have been quite interesting for someone that, as you said, was very much involved in the tactical application of intelligence for national security. It it was a great education for me. You know, uh, I would argue that I had a reasonable appreciation of what the field commander needs and what the, the warfighting commanders need. But then how does it impact the broader national security process was was brilliant for me. And also at that time, I began to work with 
service members from the other branches of the service. The National Intelligence University brought in naval officers and, and Marines and, and the Air Force as well. John Allen, General Allen was one of my classmates as well. So it just it gave me an exposure to, to the questions that, that concern our nation. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. If you could think back on your early career uh, and in and intelligence after you made the transition, is there a particular experience that you can share that would not necessarily exemplify it, but just give us a flavor of, of Mike Susong and the IC back in the 90s? Well, at that particular time, we were uh, supporting the Salvadoran government in, in, in Central America. And so when I was finishing my graduate work, I had the opportunity to work in Washington, D.C. with at that time, uh, what was an organization trying to provide appropriate support to the country team, the, the American represent, diplomatic representative and, and military attaches in, in El Salvador. So that was a great transition for me. It was a tactical role, but it was a national security mission. So that, that was a, a good transition point. Mm-hmm. Help us understand the evolution of your career through the 90s up to 9-11. So you mentioned El Salvador. What are some of the other things that you can share that you were up to? Any stories, vignettes, um, humorous or interesting kind of things that happened to you? Uh, sure. When when I made the transition to to the agency, I became an operations officer, and as as we all know, the the mission is to recruit spies and steal secrets. And so I, I worked uh, in in most of the regions of the of the world. This is always a point where you have to be a little coy. Uh, but again, it was, I will characterize it as, whereas prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the, the mission and the focus was bipolar. The agency and a lot of my missions were in regions, countries, against targets, whether it was proliferation, the range of proliferation, radiological, chemical, biological, that before had kind of been contained within the, the two superpowers, and they were responsible for it. But when countries or nation states then had some autonomy and the knowledge or the actual systems that could cause harm were, were kind of uh, thrown, the doors were thrown open and, and people uh, had access to those. And so that was very much a part of the mission was what, what happened, who has control, is there a brain drain? Uh, has a party uh, 
another country who's always desired to have, whether it was a nuclear program or, or develop a biological weapon, who might they, who might they be the highest bidder to someone who has that expertise? So it was a really very dynamic time. This is somewhere where you may have to be coy again, but how did you find the job of a case officer, the assessing, identifying, making the pitch, running? Was that something you enjoyed? Um, Help us understand your experience of becoming a case officer for the agency. And I think it's a common maybe misconception that that is a very manipulative and callous an endeavor, and I would argue quite the contrary. As I made the point before, when when someone, the the potential asset, is going to commit treason, and regardless of the country they're from, could have catastrophic and almost biblical effects on their family and and their colleagues, their emotional and psychological radar lights up, and so your integrity, your ability to communicate to them, to understand what motivates them, and to, to use the word protect might sound a little too grand, but that they have confidence in, in your partnership and your leadership is, is critical. So it's, it's, it's a very intimate, starts to maybe be too strong of a word, but it is a very close personal relationship with that asset. They are, in fact, putting their their lives and the lives of their family in your hands. So that's that, that's a burden you, you should you should uh, you should bear strongly and, uh, and and seriously. I can't remember who it was that said it, but I think someone recently said that it's an unethical profession and pursuit of an ethical goal. Would you yeah? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yes, in the sense that. The, the case officer and any intelligence officer has to know where true north is. They have to know right from wrong. And when you have to, if we want to use the word ethics, if they have to act unethically in pursuit of, of the national strategy, they never lose their bearings. It, it, that's, that's very important. You mentioned intimacy there. We had Doug London and doing a podcast, and he was saying that ultimately espionage is about the human soul. Help us understand that just from your perspective. And he spoke about that. You need to be able to connect with someone on a deep human level and and let them know that you're going to look after them. And there's almost like this bond that can that can be shared or that can build up. It, it, it's absolutely true that, as, as I said earlier before, it's, it is a personal relationship. And again... If you want to look at it from the pragmatic point of view, my objective was always the pursuit of the national security question. But it, it, it has to be pursued also then in consideration of who that asset and, and the, the trust they've, they've given to you. So it, it's, it's, it's fundamental to the, to the career. And I've heard people have different views on the whole life cycle of an asset. So some people have said to me, agents, assets, and you get people that are good at recruiting them and sometimes the two don't meet. But then I've had someone else say, I disagree with that because running an agent is a continual process of re-recruiting them. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that kind of 
recruitment, running, managing? I would I would say it's it is the former that there's different skill sets that are better at different parts of that process. And I would say it's analogous to business. You know, there's there's closers, uh, there's people who are really the salesmen, and if we want to use this this scenario as selling. And are really good at closing, but then they're not good at the kind of that long-term relationship, you know, mentoring, reassuring, working over time. And so I would say that there are case officers who are better at spotting and recruiting, and there are case officers that are better at handling because I'm not the expert, but just my own education and experience on the, to your point, the life cycle of of an asset, but also from the asset side is kind of the psychological waves they go through. And there's better case officers that do do a better job of detecting that and, and pulling the asset through through the next phase. And one thing that I've often been fascinated by is someone that says the the handoff process. So if you spot, assess and recruit someone and you build this very close human relationship with them and they're like okay now it took me a while to get there but I trust Mike he's he's going to look after mm-hmm. me and then the CIA say okay you're getting posted elsewhere or you're coming back to headquarters I, I find that handing off process very very fascinating in fact I was rereading Ben McIntyre's book on uh, Oleg Gordievsky and the, <laughs> the guy who uh, recruited him, had to hand him off to someone else who's a completely different type of personality. So I just wondered if you could if you could give our listeners a bit of an understanding about that handoff process. Sure. Um, in a perfect world, you find that receiving case officer, if you will, who either matches your skills on how you initially recruited the asset or depends on what the asset's expertise is and their value is, you find someone who that can really resonate with. Let's say uh, I recruit an asset who's, whose expertise is in, in um, chemical, chemical weapons, to use that as a, as a topic. Although I managed to get through organic chemistry, I'm certainly not the guy to have, have detailed discussions about the topic. So if you can then hand off to someone who does, certainly the asset feels validated and feels like they now have a have a peer in, in, in that relationship. So in a way, it's a little bait and switch, but at the same time, you've actually validated uh, to the asset that what you've approached them for is, is very important. So it can be done. So there's a, a, it sounds like there's a spectrum from a seamless handover all the way through to a very clumsy handover. And I'm I'm sure those have happened as well. They always do because any organization is still an organization and there are non-operational factors that force the, force the process. I'm trying to be diplomatic. Uh, so, of course, there is. But you, that's why it's human intelligence. It's a human game. And hopefully you're drawing on all your skills and you, you know, you're reading the asset and where they are emotionally to, to get them through that transition as well. Another thing that I find quite interesting is the workload. You know, I I came from academia and there there is no upper limit. There's always a new book you could read or a new book you could write or something. And yeah, with uh, recruiting and running agents, there's there's always new information that you could get, you know. So how do you manage that? How do you manage 
the workload and and I guess bearing in mind that many case officers are under diplomatic cover, so they might be involved in a day job or how do you balance all of that? It just sounds like a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> it, it is, in fact, a, a hell of a lot of work, to, to, <laughs> to, to use your phrase. And that's that's the mission you sign on for. Certainly, I would not place it above uh, first responders or military or other people in our community who have who do a hell of a lot of work. But I will say that, yes, you do have to do so under the rules of tradecraft. And you have to, it's not like you just put on your CIA hat and go, go go to that job. You have to be conscious of of your day job, as you said, depending on if you're undercover. Anything that, that impacts the perception of how you're doing your day job and then tradecraft, do, do your agency job. So it, it is a challenge, but those of us then and today who signed on for that mission uh, wouldn't have it otherwise. The, the reward... Or arguably, it's sometimes the uh, the excitement of it in a healthy way uh, it keeps us keeps us on on task. I remember reading that you know sometimes you you would maybe have to spend a very long period of time trying to make sure that you haven't been tailed or the people that are surveilling you are not on you anymore before you meet with someone. It sounds it sounds exhausting so having to spend two hours just to meet someone for like a brief interaction and then, you know, have to like try to go back? Uh, well, well, it is. And depends on the environment that you're operating in, you always maintain operational tradecraft. But to your example, in some hard targets in environments, it's very strenuous. The, the local service has a lot of resources whether you've been clearly identified as an intelligence officer or they're just suspicious, you'll, you may or may not ever know. So your, your vigilance has to be complete. And to the point we made earlier, if, you're, if you have a public-facing job and then you have to go operational to do your, your intelligence job, you don't want that transition to be abrupt too because that wouldn't potentially signal to the service that you're now operational. So it's, it's constant. It's, I was just the other day commenting uh, to someone, completely casual conversation of a couple we had met. And later we saw them at a place where we were going for the day. And my first thought was, did I tell them where we were going or did they tell me where they were going? In other words, did they follow me? Not in this case. Or did I, I go there on purpose. Uh, a little, sorry, a little circuitous, but the point mm. being is, did I say something that signaled what I was going to do? And you have mm. to do, that's, that's 24 hours a day, you have to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. That sounds very, very mentally taxing. <laughs> and it's never perfect, regardless of, of what someone might say or what the movies present, it's, it's never perfect. Yeah. And how, how does this work? Again, one of the things I love about our podcast is that it, it ranges from the person on the desk working the issue at CIA or NSA through to the average person on the street that just loves a good spy story. So <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm quite interested in as well is being a case officer overseas under diplomatic cover. This is maybe like a stupid way of looking at it, but say you're in Moscow, do they just say, okay, here's all of the all of the diplomats that are in Russia at the moment, here's all the ones that are 
working at the Moscow embassy, CIA case officers typically are X or Y or Z, so we can score out all of those people. And then we surveil all of the other people and it's clearly not the ambassador, so we can score him off. But the second political secretary or quote-unquote counsellor, you know, is there, you know, whether here in the United States, if it's the FBI surveilling targets in D.C. or if you're a case officer and you're the focus of targets, there must be some kind of process where they rule people in and rule people out and then you end up with a smaller and smaller cadre of the people that are case officers. So I guess one of the things I'm also trying to get is, is it they kind of know, but they don't know? Or is it they really don't know? They're, they just have no clue who it is and they're constantly trying to find out. And I know that that can vary, I guess, on embassy or time or the types of people, but help us understand that process of being the person that's surveilled and trying to not stand out from the crowd, trying to blend in, try to have people buy into your cover? Well, you bring up a good a good question. And short of me explaining how to identify the, the case officer in the embassy, <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a process of elimination. As we said earlier, it's, it's a bureaucratic organization. There's a finite number of diplomats that can be assigned uh, to, to that country. So as you said, you, you can start down the list and uh, kind of, and you, you can look at uh, an individual's career, you know, where, where did they serve before? On the other hand, and I would say that this is as significant as the use of non-official cover and, and the ability to operate cross-border, if you will, gives a lot more flexibility to the intelligence service and makes it more difficult to identify who might be the spy? And of course, it's it's common in every service and every counterintelligence service to to try to identify those individuals. And it harkens back to what we said before: tradecraft. How well you can do your job under the eye of the other service. It's just that factor hasn't changed. It's it's gotten more challenging in some ways and more easy with technology, but the mission has never changed. And how does that work for people that are there on the ground? Um, you know, like you having gone to the farm doing your training, when you were at a diplomatic party or something in some embassy, can you sniff out the the people that are that are um, at your adversaries? Can you know? Can you be like, no, they're definitely they're definitely like. Uh, you with, know, with the service. They are definitely with the opposing service. There's just, there's like a tell or there's like ways that they telegraph what they do or... It, it's certainly possible on occasion that I guess you you could say maybe someone who's not very good at, <laughs> not very good at their job kind of telegraphs their role or they're, they're less obtuse in the way they ask the question to begin to spot or assess uh, an individual. So in, in that regard... Yes, I guess that's that's accurate. I guess the the beauty of a good case officer is uh, it's you, you, the other party walks away and they never were suspicious or they never were concerned as to why he why he asked that conversation or why the conversation got steered in that direction. So. Mm. And I know that the CIA's charter mean that it doesn't operate in the United States, but. It seems to me that, like, say in Washington, which is a, an epicenter of global espionage, 
you've obviously got the FBI counterintelligence people that are extremely skilled at what they do at surveillance and trying to spot people and basically just do their job. But is there like a case of, well, I mean, if you want to catch a poacher, sure, you can like go to the gamekeeper, but you could also ask some other poachers and they might be able to get show you some tells. So yeah, I guess like for the FBI doing counter surveillance here in the here in Washington, do they ever go to CIA case officers because they're the poachers in the other country? Oh, if I understand your question, would they talk to a case officer to ask the question hypothetically, how would you do this? Or how would you avoid our surveillance? Certainly, you know, colleagues trade trade notes to, to see. And as I alluded to earlier, as, as technology and other techniques have evolved, that's the way to keep counter-surveillance current uh, on what uh, what may be a new technique. Let's say the classic chalk mark on the lamppost to indicate a dread drop is being serviced. Why do that when you can go online to a fake, internet account and leave a message or even a gaming uh, console and take a certain action that would, to the observer who was watching, would tell you that a drop has been has been loaded. So all those new techniques. That's fascinating. And, and walk us up to when you, what year do you leave the agency, Mike? Right around 2000, prior to 9-11. Okay. And those, the 1990s, that was a personally fulfilling time for you? You enjoyed being a case officer? Oh, oh immensely so. There's, as, as I say, there were days I regretted, but I never for a moment regretted the career and the opportunity to serve in, in the service. And one of the things that's really interesting about your career is you're in the army for a good length of time, you're in the agency for a good length of time, but then you go on to do a whole variety of other things after you leave the agency. So, you know, you get people that want to get to the bottom of the ladder and just climb as fast as they can, as high as they can. And then you get other people that try out different ladders and and, and then compare experiences and so forth. So, yeah, yeah, is it something about you that, that makes you not want to just get comfortable and feather your nest and bed in for the long haul? Is there... Is there a kind of internal restlessness or drive that makes you like keep changing and metamorphosizing and, and learning new skill sets and so forth? Uh, um, other than Dr. Hammond saying I can't keep a job. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I would say uh, I, I like the challenge uh, and, and I would lump that into probably what draws a lot of case officers too. It's it's the expression is, you know, operating with a high degree of individual decision making. When you're a case officer, you are, you know, unarmed and unafraid, as we would say. And so I think that draws a certain personality, if you will. And I'm not sure how successful I've been, but it's certainly I've never feared trying the new opportunity. So I, I think that's mm-hmm. a fair fair characterization. How effective? People could argue otherwise. <laughs> it, it wasn't a slight at all. If, <laughs> any, if anything, it was a. If anything, it was a admiration because most people are quite happy just to kind of bed down and you know get ready for the long haul and 
get complacent and it's difficult to transition to a new field and 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 you when you go to that new field people will look at you and they're like well I've been doing this longer than you and you're like well you may have been doing this specific thing longer than me but I've been doing a lot of different things and I know a lot that you don't know because of that so there's a there's always a trade-off isn't there there certainly is and and I think in successful of any transition is uh, initially shut up <laughs> <laughs> listen and learn uh, and then to to your point see what can be applied in a new way and see what's worked before you know you're not going to reinvent the game of football soccer because it's done well but there may be new aspects of it that like you said having different experiences you may bring to the problem and so you leave in 2000 help us understand the rest of the 2000s what kind of things are you up to why why do you leave or what do you go on to do or help us understand the 2000s sure uh, this was right on the cusp of 9-11 and, and to be fair it was prior to so that was not a as, as significant of an event as it was it wasn't a career d- decision for me the kids were getting older the embassies where we were assigned to as kids matriculate in higher education, it was more difficult. Or the alternative is trade is uh, is uh, um, the, the words escape me, but uh, boarding school. Uh, uh, and so that wasn't really an American thing. Uh, and so the opportunity to come back to the states presented itself, and that's when I begin to transition to the private sector. And tell us what you got up to in the private sector, because you've done some really interesting things. Well, again, we're just, we're just going to drive the point home that I can't keep a job. <laughs> uh, after after the government service, I went into, a, still is, but at that time, kind of an emerging field of intelligence in the private sector, competitive intelligence. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, And you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.